0: Of true delight, whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight, that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. You'll notice uh, if you turn to page 8 in your bulletin that the passages that we're going to read are found in your bulletin. Now, they always tell you not to preach topically. Always stick with one passage, more or less, and don't preach topically. So I'm just telling you, don't try this at home, what I'm about to do today. (laughs) This is only for professionals. No, 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 just kidding about that. But hopefully, uh, our having many of us seen these passages in their context, and I hope I will not be doing any damage to them, by not giving you in each case the full context, I think that we'll benefit from seeing these three themes, forgiveness, transformation, and consecration, as we continue to think about the Lord's Supper. And what we're trying to help you do is to benefit more and more from the Lord's Supper, to experience the grace of Christ in the Lord's Supper, to For the supper to be used by God as we think it's intended to do to lead you by the hand to Christ, to, as we've used the illustration, to set you up at the water fountain of Christ and help you taste of the goodness of Christ. We believe that it's a means of grace, not just something that we remember, but a a very real means of God to bring grace to his people. That as we believe the gospel and all the riches of Christ, as Paul calls it in Ephesians 3.8, the unsearchable riches of Christ. That the supper pictures for us the unsearchable riches of Christ. And by putting it in our hands and by having us touch it and taste it and eat it and drink it, that it all the more helps us in our physical capacity, since we are physical people, uh, physical beings, to be led from that physical to the spiritual uh, so that we all the more will be convinced He is mine to be had. His rich benefits that have been purchased for me are all out there for me to take and enrich myself on. I just uh, attended a a great conference that Jeremy Lelick's organization put on and one of the speakers talked about Michael Horton. This was uh, Tully and Chavidian who's down at Coral Ridge, Presbyterian. And he said that Michael Horton, toward the end of a talk he was giving, a sermon he was giving down at Coral Ridge, said that uh, Jesus' uh, death and resurrection is like the piñata, breaking the piñata and living the Christian life is picking up all the candy. (laughs) That may seem a little shocking, you know, but there's a, a rich sense in which that is that he has poured out blessing upon His people. And, and, and that's one of the reasons that the Lord's Supper is so precious to us because it sets before us the riches of Christ that are ours to take. But in looking at these three categories, these three aspects of His work for us, hopefully it can give you things to hang your prayers on or things to, as you come to the Supper, uh, whenever we have it, and we are thinking through uh, whether to have it more often. I know a lot of you have been asking that question. And uh, we're considering some uh, a paper on that and uh, as to whether we might have it more often. So that's, that's under consideration right now, just in case you're wondering. And that's why I catch myself however long we may have it, however many times we may have it. But um, when we do come to the supper to be thinking in these ways... How can I more greatly enjoy God's forgiveness, God's transformation, and consecrate myself to Him? So, along those lines, let's read then this first passage, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now notice some of the key words in this passage. Actually uses the word confidence to enter where? The holy places. And we've said it many times, but you know in the Old Testament, the picture of the holy place. Here he's talking about the holy place, that is the very presence of the holy God. Okay? In the Old Testament, the picture, the symbol, the representation of that holy place was the temple, or the tabernacle and then the temple. And the priest could only go in there once a year through the blood of animals. And as one Old Testament prof told us, they tied a rope around him in case he didn't make it back. Because he could die because he does something wrong in the presence of God. Which is all an indication of the fact that We are sinners and we're unfit to be before a holy God. And only this high priest once a year can go in and everyone else is outside. Then suddenly here we are, every one of us are priests. Every one of us have constant access into the holy presence of God. And we can go in there with confidence because of what Christ has accomplished for us. Because of what Christ has done for his people. This marks the forgiveness that I have in His presence, the the acceptance that I have before God. And notice both things are mentioned. Confidence to enter by the blood of Jesus, and then he says, through His flesh in verse 20. So it's a new and living way. I'm alive in the presence of God. And I have this high priest who is the Lord Jesus Christ who has accomplished by offering not the blood of animals, but his own blood, which has completely put sin away. And so, not only does he say to have confidence, but he says, draw near with the true heart. And interestingly, a true heart is a heart that trusts in his goodness and his forgiveness. Not a divided heart that would say to God, you are not that good. You have not accomplished salvation in your son. He did not pay for sin. It is not finished on the cross. But a true heart is a trusting heart. A heart that rejoices and delights in the salvation that's accomplished in Christ. And this true heart has full assurance of faith. Because this evil conscience that I had... This conscience riddled with sin and guilt has been made clean. I am washed clean through the work of Christ. And I'm to hold fast the confession of this hope without wavering. Because I'm confident in the faithfulness of my God. I was just reading this week. I'm reading uh, through uh, some of Calvin's institutes again. And he has this phrase that we're to fearlessly present ourselves before God. I love that phrase. I hope you'll remember it. Fearlessly present yourself before God. Confident. Not in anything that you have done or could do. And here is, there's a combination here of not only seeing the beauty and perfection of Christ's work, but also the imperfection of your own work, the incapability you have of standing before this holy God, of one moment of one day of your life being uh, able to be presented before this holy God. But all the more because you see your own sin and you see that Jesus Christ has died for that sin and taken that sin away and you cling to Him, looking to Him and His work, and hiding yourself in Him and His glory, having this abundant confidence, this fearless presentation of yourself before God. And you see, the supper itself proclaims this. The supper proclaims a fearless presenting of yourself to come and sit at table with God. It is We we feast in the presence of God. When we have the Lord's Supper and the Passover meal itself upon which the Lord's Supper is built or has its source connection, there was the most stark contrast wasn't there at the night of Passover when in the Egyptian homes, the firstborn was dead and there was weeping and grieving and fierce judgment had fallen upon them. And though the Israelites deserved the same judgment, they were no more righteous at heart than the Egyptians. But there was blood on their doorposts that spoke of a substitute that had died for them. And then this offering was not only the, not only the blood offered, but then they were to cook, roast the lamb, and then eat it to indicate that they had fellowship with God in the midst of judgment upon His enemies. What a contrast. And, and we're to see ourselves as not those under judgment any longer, but we're at table with God, having His smile upon us. They were there eating the full benefits of the sacrifice to, to indicate that they enjoyed this communion and acceptance with God. And we have the same picture in Revelation chapter 19 because, as we've said before, there are two suppers in Revelation 19. One is the mirrored supper of the Lamb. Later in chapter 19, the supper is one that vultures attend and they're eating the carcasses of the wicked. So again, there's a stark contrast... Of those who are enjoying undivided acceptance and love from God and all the benefits of His salvation, and those who have rejected that Savior, despised that death, mocked it, think, I don't need such a salvation. I don't need a death in my place. I don't value Him. I don't treasure Him. I don't see myself as a sinner before this God. And therefore, I don't need this Redeemer. Passover was what is called in other places in Scripture a peace offering. The peace offering, unlike some of the other offerings, in the peace offering you put your hand upon the sacrifice. Because you put your hand upon the sacrifice, your sins are transferred to the animal and he is killed. Then parts of the animal are offered up to God as a sign of your giving yourself up to God and consecrating yourself to God, but then the rest of the animal is roasted and eaten. And you eat there in the presence of God as a sign that you have shalom with God. You have perfect peace with God, perfect acceptance. One one of the peace offerings is called a thank offering so that praise and peace are joined together in this meal that you have in the presence of God, praising Him and enjoying His salvation. There is there is proclaimed there the sheer enjoyment of the presence and delight of God. And so, Christ, we are told in Colossians one, that through Christ He was to recon- He reconciled all things to Himself whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, shalom, by the blood of his cross. And then Romans 5.1, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we too eat the victim. It sounds severe, but that's, that's what we do. Even as they ate the lamb that is sacrificed, Jesus puts Himself for us in that regard. This is my body. This is my blood. Take it. Eat it. Drink it. And it's a celebration of the peace and communion with God that we have because Jesus Christ has become our peace. It underscores the assurance that God has brought about peace between us and that He has only favor toward us in the Lord Jesus Christ. It assures us that... His goodness pursues us, that He will never leave us, that He will freely give us all things. And in that place of peace, sin can accuse us, must accuse us, no longer. The only way that you can come to a point where sin doesn't accuse you is that you fully admit your sin. You fully own your sin. You're broken over your sin. You're not hiding from your sin. You're not making excuses. You're not blaming other people. You're not saying, well, I'm better than this person or that person. You're like the tax collector who said before in the temple, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. This is the cry of every person who knows the incredible joy of the presence of God. But sin can only stop accusing you when you have accused yourself of sin and that you found relief and forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ, then what can sin say to you? You say, yeah, I know, I have. Yes, yes, I did that. Yes, I did all of that. Yes, but Jesus has taken it away and I have peace with God. Now, I thought one of the speakers this week uh, Kevin DeYoung made an, a very important point about our good works. And I, I had in my hand... Oh, I do have it. Sorry. <laughs> that's really shows my age that I was up here and I thought, I forgot the book. Then I forgot that I brought the book. And so... Uh, <laughs> but I've read this section to us before and... Uh, think it would this is a good time to read it again because I think in a practical way for us we 'll we'll talk about this kind of acceptance with God, but then in day to day life we tend to think uh, that most of what we do is not acceptable to God because rightly we surmise I do there 's nothing that I do that 's perfect there 's nothing that I do that's perfect, and that can be frustrating when you think well what 's the use of trying to do anything good because I can never do it perfectly. So I'm just, I'm just in that treadmill, you know, trying to do good but never perfect. And so everything's always unacceptable to God. But the section on good works in our confession is so helpful here. Now, it makes it very clear that our works in and of themselves aren't acceptable So it'll say, we cannot by our best works merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God by reason of the great disproportion that is between them and the glory to come and the infinite distance that's between us and God. When we've done all we can, we've done but our duty and we're unprofitable servants. And because they are good, they proceed from His Spirit, but as they are wrought by us, they are defiled, mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. Okay, now are we down enough after that, all right? They cannot, they can't, there's nothing about them that can withstand the severity of God's holy judgment. Notwithstanding, says in the next chapter, the persons of believers being accepted through Christ... Their good works also are accepted in him. There's precious news that as you offer sincere obedience to him, even though it's not perfect, it's acceptable. He receives it. He accepts it. He smiles upon you because you are in his son. He says, their good works are also accepted in him, not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable or unprovable in God's sight. We're not saying they're perfect. Again, he's really, they're really making sure you understand that so that you don't begin to think, well, I don't need Jesus. You know, God accepts me as I am. But that he looking upon them in his Son is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere though accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. And I think that's important for us on a practical level as we take the Lord's Supper to realize it's not just in this moment that I have acceptance, but all that I do as it's sincerely offered up to Him has acceptance. That I can experience His smile upon the whole of my life as I'm sincerely giving myself up to Him. Now, it doesn't mean that every... because we do willfully disobey Him at times. For sure, but he gave a great illustration, Kevin de Young, about your daughter. Tell her to clean up her room, and uh, she 's six years old, and she gets about rustling, bustling, cleaning up her room. Now are you going to go in there now, he didn't say it exactly like this he's probably funnier than this, but anyway uh, he but imagine going in there and you're like ex military you know and you walking in and said you're flipping the corner on the bed. Sally, come here. Watch this quarter. Did that bounce? I said, did that bounce? No. Make it up again. Anybody here going to come close to that? No. I dare say that's how many of us think God reacts to our sincere efforts to obey him. Just slamming it down. And... young makes the great point that if we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, he uses that phrase and says, if we being evil know how to be gracious to our children and accept their sincere efforts, how much more will our Heavenly Father be gracious toward us and accept our sincere effort? Because we are in His Son. We are His beloved children. We sit at table with Him. We're family. We come in and sit at table with Him. He loves us and treasures us. And it gives us hope that we can truly grow in grace and seek to obey Him and please Him more and more as His children. That, that obedience is, is real. Uh, obedience and pleasing God is a real vital part of our lives. And 1 John 4 points us to understanding His love in this way as we look to Judgment Day, okay? 1 John 4, verses 17 through 19, if you want to turn there and you've got your pew Bible, it's on page 1023. After talking about the love of God revealed through Jesus Christ in verses 9 and 10, He talks about the effect of this love in us, for us, in verse 17. He says, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also we in this world our union with Christ. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So this passage tells us that if we, in a mature and rich, and he uses the word perfect way, understand his love for us, and are beginning to live out that love, then it casts out the fear of punishment. It casts out the fear of judgment in that day. And that reminds us, doesn't it, of John Newton's words in Amazing Grace. Uh, "'Twas love that taught my heart to fear." That is the kind of fear in which I trust Him and love Him and give myself to Him. And grace our fears relieved the fear of wanting to run away from Him, the fear of dread and judgment. So His grace makes me, in the one hand, be in awe of Him and admire Him and adore Him and want to give myself up to Him, and His grace drives away a fear of dread and punishment so that I can actually look to Judgment Day and say, no fear, not because of me, not because of what I've accomplished, but because of what Christ has done for me. And there's a connection there because like it or not, we are told that in judgment day, we will be judged by our works. Right? Now, this, this kind of affects the standard question we ask the unbeliever. If you stand before God in that day and he asks, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And the right answer is, I would say, only because I trust in Jesus Christ. And that is the right answer. But here's the fuller answer. Because I trust in Jesus Christ and by His grace, my life has shown that I trust Him. And by His grace, all of my works, weak as they are, are accepted in Him. You see, your works all along are accepted in Him. All along, He embraces you and loves you. And it's not going to be any different in Judgment Day when He judges you according to your works. Because your works are in Christ. Your works are seen in Christ. You are seen in Christ. And part of your works will indicate your helpless dependence upon Him. You're crying out against the sin that you hate so much and struggle so against. Part of your works will be the humble love that you have for Jesus Christ. And so the supper is to make to help us experience and know this forgiveness that we have in Christ Jesus and going on then to transformation let me just talk briefly well in fact i'm just going to i'm just going to talk uh, about how hebrews this this passage that we have Um, in Hebrews 10, the last two verses that we didn't read. If you look on your bulletin again, the last two verses that we didn't read. Notice the connection then between this acceptance with God and what He calls them to do next. Next. So, on the one hand, having confidence to enter this place, full assurance of faith, heart sprinkled clean from uh, an evil conscience, holding fast the confession of our hope. What is the most natural thing for him to say next once he's driven home this fact that you are dwelling in the presence of a holy God and fully confident that he accepts you and loves you in Christ? And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. You see, the, the experience of the love of God and the acceptance of God through Jesus Christ just naturally, naturally begins to transform us. We'll talk about this more next week, but it immediately begins to transform us so that we love those who as we have been loved. We love others as as He loves us. And we begin to change our defense of ourselves, our making excuses when we're corrected, our edginess when we're corrected, our tendency to attack when we're corrected or criticized. Uh, It's changed because we are admitting before God humbly that, We are broken, needy sinners and we don't have to boast anymore. We don't have to defend ourselves anymore. That's why 1 Corinthians 13 says love is what? Love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. Why is it not these things? Because it's broken, Because it's broken. It's not trying to satisfy any acceptance with God. It realizes I have no acceptance with God. Jesus is my acceptance. I can freely admit my sinfulness, not only to God, but to my mate and to my friends. I have nothing to hide. I have no excuses to make. I've experienced the forgiveness and love of God. And, and these are signs that we are still, of course, we'll struggle with it to our dying day, but these are signs of our still putting ourselves at the center of our world and wanting others, as Paul Tripp puts it, uh, to worship me like I worship me, <laughs> to be amazed at me as I'm amazed at me, uh, to meet my needs instead of me being bent on meeting Your needs. And 1 John, the passage that we just talked about, very, very interesting. Right after he talks about that we're delivered from the fear of punishment, okay? And love is perfected in us. We fully understand his love for us so that we have no fear of punishment. Then he says, we love because he first loved us. To see, this being free of the fear of punishment has everything to do with my capacity to love other people. This acceptance with God that is proclaimed in the supper, that is pictured there and offered to me so that I can experience it by having the supper itself, is critical to my love to my brothers and my sisters. So forgiveness brings about... Transformation. There can be no forgiveness without transformation. And that's why the idea of Jesus being your Savior and not your Lord is absolutely ludicrous. Because if you have taken Him as your Savior and you have this beginning gratefulness and awe and amazement that He has forgiven you His sins, you will gladly call Him your Lord. You will. You will. And if you do not want Him as Lord, then you don't see your need of Him as Savior at all. Because He is... We we call Him Lord because we see His preciousness. And as we come to this last hymn, would you turn over to page 11 and look at this just briefly? This is why, as well, there is this dedication, this consecration to Christ. You see, you don't consecrate yourself to Christ except that you have begun to adore Christ. You've begun to admire what He has accomplished for you. You can't believe that He would forgive your sins. You can't believe that He would stand in your place and bear your sin. You can't believe that you have free and wonderful fellowship with God. And so you want to give yourself up to His will. And so he says in the second verse, the last two lines, O oh, while thou dost smile upon me, God of wisdom, love, and might, Foes may hate and friends disown me. Show thy face and all is bright. See, I become willing to sacrifice everything because what am I living for? I'm living for that smile, that grace, that acceptance. It defines me now. It defines everything that happens to me. Everything that happens to me is a part of his love for me. And nothing can stand in the way of His love for me. Nothing can transgress His love for me. If God is for me, all things, uh, nothing can be against me, Paul says. And so in the next verse, second two lines, "'Tis not in grief to harm me while thy love is left to me." You see? Grief cannot get me because I have your love. And then on the other hand, There is no, nothing that can charm me, no joy that can charm me, unless that joy, if that joy does not have you in it. So grief can't harm me, joy can't charm me, because if grief can't harm me because I have you, and no joy can charm me apart from you, because it's you, (laughs) it's you, because you have died for me. May God bless us as we come to the supper and as we come to Jesus Christ always to be convinced of the forgiveness and acceptance that we have in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that You would open up our hearts to receive the grace of Jesus Christ. Lord, if there are any here that are not convinced of their need of Christ, not convinced of their own sinfulness before You, not convinced of their own commitment to themselves and not to your glory, that I'm not making you the, the centerpiece of their lives. Oh, Lord, may your beauty and glory break into their hearts that they would want to give themselves up to you, entrust their lives to you for forgiveness and transformation, to, to belong to you throughout their lives and through, forever and ever. O Lord, what king is there? What God is there? Except this God who would give himself to die for his people. May we serve you gladly, willingly, eagerly, zealously. We ask it for the sake of Jesus. Amen.